very familiar verses, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, some of the bread and butter of our, our understanding of salvation. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for giving us that which speaks to our hearts and speaks to our souls, that you unite with your spirit who dwells within us to illuminate us and to give us that, that clear vision of who you are and what it is you're seeking to accomplish in our lives. We thank you that it begins with salvation in and through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father God, for the souls of each one here and those who are listening, that we be a people who, are been, who have truly been born again, who truly are those who are regenerate, and that we would desire to see your grace at work in our lives. Help us to that end as we come to this brief study in Ephesians. We ask that you would be honored and glorified. Build up your church, and Lord, may we come to walk more closely after Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, this particular text, I think, relates quite well to our study in Second Peter. And one of the things that has come out in the study of Second Peter is this emphasis upon Christ. Uh, we, we haven't got out of the first four verses, and we are talking about who Christ is, what Christ has done, and that has been the focus, Christ alone in our salvation. And even as we noted this morning, it's Christ alone in our sanctification, at least by means of getting that, that, uh, that whole process going, that are being born again or saved and that are living out the evidence of salvation uh, is that which God produces in us. Now, a question has come up from a couple of different sources, and that's what's driven me to the Ephesians uh, 2 text. And the question that I've been asked is, what is the relationship? What is the, the nature and the relationship of the believer's good works to our salvation? Are believers required, expected, obligated to good works? What, is that, what does that look like? What happens if there are not those good works? Are we saved at all by our good works? And so we've had this emphasis of Christ alone, and so the question becomes, where do the believer's good works come in? Well, even as I read from this text, it is evident that believers are expected to produce good works. There are The, the expectation, even in this particular passage, is not even so much that they produce good works, but rather that God produces good works in them. And so we want to take some time to flesh out these, these two spiritual truths that, one, we are saved by grace, that salvation is solely the work of God on, on us, as we noticed. And then I would like to say the second truth is this, that we are working by grace. We are saved by grace and we are working 
by grace. That this salvation to which we have been called, it works. It actually produces tangible fruit. In fact, if you don't have the fruit, it begs the question, are you actually saved? So we want to work through those particular things. Now, generally speaking, I want to submit to you why we're talking about that, because there's two general errors that are found in Christianity in general, two serious departures from this truth, and they tend to confuse people. And so I want to address them as we begin. The first error is found actually from Roman Catholicism, and Roman Catholicism teaches that in order to earn enough merit to be saved, in order to be good enough for heaven, people must add to the work of, cro- to, of Christ on the cross their own measure of good works. In other words, Christ isn't enough. There's got to be more added to the work of Christ. We'll see in a moment that this is not what Scripture teaches, but we must immediately be struck with the, the major problem this view creates Because if a person is expected to add to his or her own good works to the work of Christ, it it brings us to this conclusion. No one would ever know if he or she is saved. You have no possibility, no assurance, no hope of ever knowing if you've been saved. The last time that I checked, there was no app by which you might check your spiritual merit balance. It'd be nice if you could go and to say where to, I say it would be nice. It'd be ridiculous to have to have an app to say, okay, where do I stand? How much more merit do I need to get into heaven? One, because you would never have enough merit to get into heaven. Number two, because for the true Bible believer, you don't need an app. You have the word of God that says Jesus died once for all for our sin. And so he paid it all, as we said this morning, He gave it all. So that's a serious issue. There's no automated system where we get that information. This means that the person must then just keep on seeking to add his own good works to the works of Christ. And part of that is offensive in the sense that how on earth would do you ever add something more or better to the work of Christ? So, again, This stands in contrast to the teaching of Scripture. Ephesians 2.8 clearly says, For by grace you have been saved. It is something that is finished. It is done. It is complete. It is true for us. We had a little statement. Can we go back to the passage for just a moment, the previous uh, reference there? So uh, I I just want to point this out. I'm trying to drive this home. We talked about a perfect tense in Greek. For by grace you have been saved. That is that perfect tense in the Greek. It speaks of that which has taken place in the past. You have been saved. But it has present and ongoing effects in the present. And it will lead you on into the future. It does not say for by grace you had been saved. That would imply that, well, you had been saved in the past. But who knows if you're saved now. It doesn't say, for by grace, you were saved in some imperfect tense that says, we don't even know anymore. Paul is emphatic, for by grace, you have been, continue to be, and always will be saved. And the motivation of that is grace. From the moment that a person is saved through his life, lived with, and for Christ on into the future, 
that one is saved. The, under Roman Catholic teaching, a person could never say this. All right, but there's another error, so we'll forward to the other error. And this is more prevalent in our so-called evangelical churches. And what is this error? It is the belief that there is no connection between salvation in Christ alone and the believer's good works. They don't have any bearing on one another whatsoever. Such a belief states that since believers are saved by grace alone, which is what we believe, through faith alone, which is what we believe, that someone may receive Christ, this is where they take this, they may receive Christ as Savior, and yet, whether or not any good works follow, doesn't matter. They don't have to submit to Christ as Lord. They do not need to obey the commands at all. So we find people praying a prayer to receive Jesus as Savior. Some of you know these kinds of people. They've said, I believe in Jesus. I've, I prayed the prayer. I walked an aisle only later to profess that they're now an atheist or to be found living in some kind of ongoing flagrant sin in, in defiance of what God's word has said. said. Yet, according to this view, such a person, they say, would be in heaven because at some point in the past, they decided to receive Christ, only they decided to receive him as Savior. Such a view falls short as it fails to recognize that in order to be saved in the first place, what, what has to happen to be saved in the first place? Just stop and think for a moment. What has to happen for a person to be saved in the first place? Well, the, for a person to be saved, God must raise the sinner from a state of death to a state of life, which by very definition, the last time I checked, from death to life, that's a radical change. You should see something take place in the person who has been so transformed as to receive the grace of God that takes them out of darkness into God's marvelous light. To be dead and then to be made alive in Christ is an astounding thing. I submit to you that if there is no change, if there is no demonstrable difference between the one who said, I, I came to know Jesus, but I'm just going to go live my life the way that I desire, that is not biblical. That is not what we see in Scripture. Such a person must question the reality of their conversion. The view that says Christ may be received only as Savior without a change of heart, actually rips the truth of repentance from sin out of saving faith. You are supposed to repent. That means I acknowledge my sin. I know I am wrong. I know there must be a change. It reduces saving faith to be nothing more than simply believing some facts about the gospel. And for those who hold such a view... The idea of Christ's lordship, of submitting to and obeying his commands, they say may follow some after they're saved, but it is not a necessary aspect of saving faith. May it never be. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that no one may boast, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. 
So we've got to get our head wrapped around this very idea. And in Ephesians 2.10, those often quoted and beloved words, Paul addresses the error of Roman Catholicism and the error of what we see rampant in evangelicalism today. Notice, if you will, if you're looking at Ephesians 2.10, it begins with a very little word. It begins with the word for, tying it to what Paul had written previously in verses 8 and 9, that we have been saved by grace through faith, apart from any works on the part of the believer, so that no one may boast or say that they were saved because of something they did. Truly salvation, as we've been preaching from Second Peter, is a gift of God so that God alone receives the glory, that our boast is not in us, we boast in the name of the Lord our God. Yet the flow of thought doesn't end in verse 9. So many people have memorized verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, but they fail to memorize verse 10. I encourage you, memorize verse 10. The flow of thought continues. There's more that Paul desires to explain to the church there at Ephesus. And what is it that Paul introduces in verse 10? In effect, Paul says this. It is true that genuine salvation is entirely by the grace of God. Yet, such a salvation inevitably results in a life of good works. Grace works. Your life, if you are in Christ, should be that which bears fruit for Christ. That is the expectation of Scripture. It is the statement of God. Saving faith not only saves by, the, by God's grace, I submit to you that saving faith works by God's grace. Let me quickly note that there are those who believe that Paul and James are at odds in what they understand when it comes to the matter of being justified that is declared right with God. We are justified how, according to the Bible. We are justified by faith. And then Paul and James, they say, are at odds because faith and, and good works, you know, how do they relate? So let me read a couple of scriptures to you. We begin in, in Romans 3, 23 and 24. Notice what Paul writes, we're very familiar with verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anybody hear that one before? Just a couple times. Verse 24, being justified, now notice what it says here, as a gift by his grace. So even your justification by faith is what? A gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus we drop down to verse 28, here's Paul. For we maintain that a man is justified. He is declared right with God by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, so what do we do to be saved? Well, we must have faith and there's nothing about works there, right? Then we read in James chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. So you can, I have it up there for you, and I'm going to put these two back up there. Some have said there's a contradiction here between James and Paul, and we're going to address that. Verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. 
The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up, his fa- his, up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now let's just take those two statements again. We just read verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is in the scriptures. This is God's word. It should put a weight upon us to recognize if my faith is not working, I've got a problem. But then we look at what Paul said again in verse 28. Go ahead and put that up there. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. According to some, James and Paul did not get the same memo from God, and they ended up teaching entirely different things. In truth, both James and Paul are teaching the very same thing, only they're coming at it from different angles because they are actually addressing different issues. For James, he was addressing the belief of some that said saving faith needs not result in good works. And James says, in effect, may it never be. He states that genuine faith, listen, genuine faith always produces what? Works, good works. Genuine faith will always produce good works. Now, Paul, on the other hand, is addressing belief, the belief, uh, the one largely held by the Pharisees of, a, of the day, that our good works actually commend us to God. When we do the good works, God's like, you've done well, and I'm going to give you some merit because of what you have done. And Paul's arguing that no one could ever earn enough salvation by his or, own, his or her own good works. This is not the same thing as saying saving faith does not produce good works. He says, you will never be saved by your good works. And James is saying, your, sa- your saving faith will always produce good works. They don't save you, but they always are produced. Here in Ephesians 2.10, Paul's intent is to clarify the issue. Again, we must believe and we state unequivocally that salvation from beginning to end, start to finish, is all of God. But in that period of start to finish something's taking place, right? We like to start to finish. It's all of God. This is true. But God is doing something in the life of his children from start to finish, that process that God has ordained, a process that God says in Ephesians 2.10 will result in good works in the life of the saved. Beloved, just as we cannot take any glory for ourselves that we ever came to believe on Jesus Uh, for salvation on our own, 
what Paul is saying is we will never be able to take glory in the good works that follow as a result of our salvation. If you think you're something special because you have seen God at work in your life, you haven't understood the wonder of salvation. Because this is true for all believers, that God produces works in the life of his children. To God, the God of glory, the God of providence, who is at work in us to accomplish his purposes, is working out our salvation from beginning to end so that all the credit, all the glory, all the honor belongs to him. And so my desire for this week and for next week before we have our series coming up in, in uh, March, beginning, uh, beginning in March on Jonah, uh, this week we're going to begin to look at two of five truths about salvation and good works that come to us from verse 10 of Ephesians 2. So let's look at this again. Look at Ephesians 2.10. Let me read it again. For we, those who, are, who were dead in their trespasses and sins, those, uh, that's verse 1 of this text. Those who were made alive in Christ, verse 5, who have been seated up with Christ in the heavenlies, verse 6, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And our first truth that I would like to point out is this. True salvation begins with God making us new creations. True salvation begins with God making us new creations. If it didn't start with God, it's not of God. If you think you've done something to merit or earn your salvation, that's not of God. Verse 10 begins, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you know that when you read Greek, the, the way that Paul would write a letter if he wanted to emphasize something, he'd put it at the very beginning of the sentence. It makes for very awkward reading in the English. And in the Greek text, the word his is emphatic in the Greek. It means it's the very first word in this statement. And so it literally reads this way, his, for we are workmanship created. Now that doesn't flow very well in the English, does it? But that's the way it reads in the Greek. It begins with his, underscoring a truth that Paul has been making in chapters 1 and chapter 2. I have emphasized this for you before, but when you read Ephesians 1 and you read those first 17 verses, you will note that there's not one thing that you or I do in the process of being saved. It's everything of God. It's God has blessed us. It's God who has brought redemption. It's God who brings forgiveness of sin. It's God, God, God. And so he begins now with this idea of his, that salvation is ordained by God from eternity and that we had nothing to do with it. We, as we begin chapter 2, there's a reminder of what we do contribute. When we finally get mentioned in the whole process, what does Paul say about us? The most flattering terms possible. You all were dead. God's been doing all this glorious stuff. Yippee, this is fantastic. God's glorious. Now what do I get to bring to this? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following the course of the prince of the power of the air. And you were by nature children of wrath, 
deserving God's eternal torment for your sin. Verse 5, but God, but God made you alive. God raised you from this state of deadness. And even as God created the heavens and the earth, even as you read Genesis 1-1 and go, wow, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing by the word of his power. Nobody coerced him to do this. That same power God has now used to recreate us in Christ Jesus by his mighty power. In fact, I will submit to you, as contrary as this seems to run in my mind, at least from a visual perspective, I want to get the DVD of God creating the heavens and the earth. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, just to sit there and he calls all these things into existence, and we are in utter awe of what God accomplishes in Genesis chapter 1, and that all pales in comparison to what God has done to take the sinner and make him a son to take the dead and make him alive. I can't even begin to comprehend that idea. Some of you are familiar with the Greek idea behind the word workmanship. The Greek word is poema. We actually get our word poem. It can mean a masterpiece. It means a work of art. You think that this creation is incredible to look at. You go to the Grand Canyon, which actually was a result of sin. And you see the awesomeness of what God did when he flooded the earth and all the waters receded. You take a look at some of the most beautiful spots on the face of the earth. And none of them compare to what God has done in the life of the one that he's made alive in Christ. Now, the word workmanship is interesting because it's only used twice in the entirety of the New Testament. Where does it show up? It shows up in another place in Romans chapter 1, in verse 20, where it is translated. See it in just a moment. Hopefully. It's translated by the phrase, what has been made. Same word. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, through his workmanship, through his craftsmanship, so that they are without excuse. You cannot look at this world and not see the hand of God. And so the same principle now is being used that this this power of God's original creation, this masterpiece, the heavens, Psalm 19, are declaring, are picturing the glory of God. All of that is now that the idea is being shared here in Ephesians 2.10, and it's that God, that same power by which God crafted the, the entirety of his original creation by his own power, he to put his power on display, to put his glory on display, it is the same 
power that God uses to turn the sinner into a son. This is a creation according to his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We are his craftsmanship. We are a a piece of art that was taken out of messy, mucky clay, and now he's made something extraordinary out of it. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, maybe you've heard this one a few times. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things, new things have come. That Ephesians 1 and 2 are so clear to present us the truth that salvation is all of God reminds us of something. Why do, does Paul begin to write to a church? I love this church. He says, I love you guys. You are saints in the Lord. I, I've ministered there at Ephesus. I've left Timothy to be a pastor there for you. I love you more than you can ever imagine. And he spends the opening chapter of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 to remind them that salvation is all of God because we are so prone to take to ourselves even just a little bit of the credit. I was just smart enough. I just haven't. You know one of the ways I think we do it in the United States? We, uh, we say we were blessed to be born into a Christian nation. We didn't do nothing. And if God wants to save a multitude in a, in a country that at one time upheld the Ten Commandments, so be it. But he's saving multitudes in China and multitudes in Korea and multitudes in Asia. We have this idea, by the way, uh, we tend to see all of Christianity and all of Christian history through the eyes of our American experience. May it never be. God's been at work long before there was an America, and he'll be if God if he tarries long after there is one. May it never be. Well, what does it look like to take some of this credit? Now, you know, it, what, what would we do? We've talked about that, but if we are unable to boast in anything that brought us to be saved. Here's what may, might happen. We all, we're, we're reformed folks. We know there's nothing we can do to be saved. Maybe we can take just a little bit of credit, just a little bit, about the good works that come after we're saved. I mean, I was just a little more obedient than my brother over there. I've got just a few more notches in my, my belt of the good things that I've done. Right? We can do that. Then boom, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that everything from the believer's initial conversion to the believer's holy conduct to the believer's final consummation in glorification, it is all of God from God's eternal sovereign purpose and power to save and to complete the project which he himself began. You are not your workmanship. You are his workmanship. You are not, you are not making your poem to God. You are God's poem to himself. Praise be to God. 
And so even as the physical creation can do nothing to boast of its existence and nothing to boast of its beauty, but can only declare the glory of God, so too can those who are of God's new creation in Christ make, uh, make, uh, uh, make a boast, cannot boast in either our salvation or in the good works to follow. Beloved, our salvation is never in ourselves, but is always and only in Christ Jesus. We read of this just a few verses up in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. Notice the repeated phrases. And, and raised us up, God raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, even when we get out there into eternity, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You will always be in Christ Jesus. You will never be out of Christ Jesus. You will not be praising God in glory because of yourself. You'll be praising God in glory because of what he has done and is doing in you by grace. Grace works. The phrase in Christ Jesus reveals that everything God has done to save us and to bring us the glory is only found in Christ. As Jesus explained very simply in John 15, 5, saying those very profound words, apart from me, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's true today. It'll be true in eternity. It is true for the sinner, and it is true for the saint. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is either entirely true or entirely false. And seeing it is stated in the word of God, I'm going to take it that it must be entirely true, and I'm going to call myself and you to live accordingly. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but apart from him, I can do nothing. According to Ephesians 1.3, in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why? Why do we have everything we need in Christ? Why is scripture so emphatic on this point? Because this life is not about you and me. He must increase. We must decrease. In everything, God must receive the glory. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, let it all be to the glory to the glory of God. Why are those who seek, if even to a minor degree, some credit for something in their salvation, why do they do this? It happens, beloved, as people begin to confuse making a decision for Christ with true biblical salvation. When we start talking about making decisions for Christ rather than what is true biblical salvation, here's a truth to ponder. All who are genuinely saved receive Christ. With me so far? If you are saved, you've received Christ. But not all who make a profession of receiving Christ are genuinely saved. So how do we discern the difference? Because if you are his workmanship, something's going to pop out. 
there's going to be a difference. How do we know if we ourselves, how can we discern if others who have made professions of following Christ are genuinely saved? Beloved, those whom God genuinely saved saves are said to be new creations in Christ. There are going to be changes. They are now born again. We talk about regenerated. We talk about being converted. Their hearts of stone, stony unbelief, are now made hearts of flesh that seek to obey him. Which, by the way, obedience is, by definition, what? A good work. Every time I obey him, it's a good work. Does that make me more favorable to God? No, because I'm only favorable to God how? Because of Christ Jesus. I can't add, I can't take away from that. We read in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, familiar words of the new covenant. Moreover, God is speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And notice what it says there. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I love the last phrase. Because now, wait, I'm a robot, right? I'm going to make you walk in my ways, and you're going to hate this. But then he adds, and you, you're going to play in this. You've got a part in this. You will be careful to observe my commands. You see what we talked about this morning, how to become a partaker of the divine nature. It starts with God. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and yet God says, come along, and I want you to see, I want you to participate in this, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Who's the cause? Who gets all the credit for a believer walking according to God's statutes in this text? Who gets the credit? God and God alone. Yet who is careful to observe all of God's ordinances? Me, the believer, his care to follow God's commands is not that which saves him. Rather, it is the indication that God has given a new heart. How do I know I have a new heart? Because God causes me to walk according to his statutes, and then I have this desire to observe his ordinances. I have this new heart. I have this Holy Spirit now. He's caused me to walk in his ways. It is God and God alone who changes the trajectory of my life, one from hostility towards God to one who is delighted to submit to his ways. We read this this morning, but look with me at Romans 6, 17 and 18. We see it again. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient 